I'm Peter High, the president of MetaStrategy, book author, Forbes columnist, and your host. I'm excited to share this conversation with Hervé Coré, the former chief information officer and chief digital officer, and the current chief governance officer and secretary general of Schneider Electric, a leader in sustainable energy with revenues exceeding $32 billion annually. Hervé graciously shared his thoughts on a variety of topics featured in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book is available for pre-order now on Amazon or through gettingtonimble.com. In this interview, we dive into several of the book's themes, including people, technology, strategy, and ecosystems. Hervé begins by sharing how Schneider Electric's business culture continues to evolve as they adopt aspects of culture from the businesses they acquire. He also discusses his process for making bets on new technologies to gain a first mover advantage, the importance of agile portfolio management, the partnerships Schneider forged to foster innovation, and a variety of other topics. This interview kicked off with a discussion about Schneider Electric's company culture and Hervé's approach to evolving it over time. Stick around after the interview to hear more about the five themes of Getting to Nimble or visit gettingtonimble.com to learn more. Thank you. I always think, you know, when we're sort of step back and think at that, you kind of make things look slightly better than they are because you sort of intellectualize things on, you know, when you are in the heat of the moment, it's kind of more always, of course, uh, uh, a little more hectic, you know, it's not as structured as uh, writing the history <laughs> exactly. from, uh, from the, the vantage point of, uh, of, you know, a few months later or a couple of years. But, but if we had to think about some of the headlines, I, I, I think, you know, one of the stuff that I think is very core to the company is how we think about change and transformation and how we think it is sort of a diffuse responsibility. I think there's something about the culture where we are probably not the most process-centric company. It's, it's, we're a little organic and we're kind of a little distributed. Of course, you know, you have rules, you have guidelines, compliance and so forth. But I think there's something strong about our culture, which is the entrepreneur how we leave people quite a high degree of entrepreneurship and we leave them some accountability and we are much more looking at results. And we have a phrase actually in our, you know, the way we describe our culture, which is empowerment over control, which I think fairly describes, not to say there's no control, of course, but we try to really leave a freedom for experimentation, which probably is a little unusual in a company of our sector, our size, etc. We, we know that we have some time in order to do that. You know, you could be slightly more efficient globally if you know you were defining one way or doing things, and you know, you could you could win a few percentage of, of efficiency, but we believe that being a little organic and a little distributed gives us more resilience gives us more accountability and gets us to a better outcome. So, you know, I know it's kind of not particularly original to start with culture, but I think there is something in how we've built ourselves, which is that very regional culture, that very resilient kind of organic uh, culture where people feel highly accountable. I mean, there's and, and that's something very, very core to the, to the culture. I, I think the other thing that we've tried to to do is as much as we try to keep that on, on the people side, that sort of uh, highly entrepreneurial, empowered culture, 
we have played on other dimensions, in particular resource allocation. And it kind of might look a little contradictory, but actually it's not that contradictory if you look at it. As we've looked at centralizing some investment on resource allocation decision. And the thinking was, you know, if you let every small unit making all the investment decisions, you might get a lot of small bets, but you, you may have a problem that none of those bets might be big enough so that they really make a dent, right? So, so you might be dispersed in a lot of different areas. So, so you know, and we're by far, you know, not doing it perfectly or whatever, but we've, we've sort of done a culture of a strategic cycle where we look at the bets that we want to take as an organization and we kind of counterbalance the entrepreneurship with a fairly disciplined approach in resource allocation and investment decisions, right? So that we, yes, we have small teams. Yes, we have people who, you know, are able to make a lot of decisions on the field as to what they think is right. But at the same time, we counterbalance that with that very disciplined resource allocation process that is fairly centralized. So if we decide this is a bet, this is a bet. And I think that has explained the traction we had on digital, for instance, because you, you had that mix of, you know, people on the ground making quick, fast-paced decisions, adapting quickly, didn't have to go through five layers of corporate approval to get something going. But at the same time, we had allocated sufficient amount of money so that we could make a dent, right? And we could we could really do things that are that are material. Mm. I think a third aspect, more on the technology side, is we've tried to again due to because everything sort of starts with a culture, right? So due to the culture, we 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 try to have an approach to technology that's more. We try to use our central technology units to be sort of ahead of the game and say, hey, you know, we should never have a situation where an operating unit comes to the center and asks for something. Because if they ask for something, it's already too late. You have to build it. It means you're not ready. You're going to move not as fast as, you know, all the super nimble, super agile startups, smaller companies, whatever. So, so I think you need to counterbalance the scale of a company with the ability to make bets and to make bets that are sort of see what's ahead and try to identify the bets that are working for you before they become mainstream. So we've tried to really leverage the cloud. We try to leverage API. We try to leverage product versus project sort of approach. And I really believe in the value of being explicit. You know, we try to be fairly Discipline in in either having a first mover advantage or a last mover advantage. Either we invest early or we say, no, it's not critical. We'd better use that particular technology, you know, later on when it's price, etc. Because it's not core for us. It's good, but it's not being critical. And, and you can't do everything, right? If you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing. So So we try to apply that lends also to our technology choices being fairly trying to be sharp on, on, on explicit in our choices. And you say, okay, we're not going to make that many bets, but we're going to make a few, we're going to make bets early, and we'll try either to be 
very early to be kind of a, you know mature adopter, but will avoid that middle frenzy curve when everybody goes, uh, <laughs> things are expensive, <laughs> you are in the middle of a hit, and, and, and kind of it's very difficult to have an edge because everything is doing the same thing, right? So, so you still experience some of the early scars, but you're not really ahead, and you don't have a benefit from, from technologic maturity. Mm-hmm. So that's also how we look at technology and, and trying to have that, that idea of where is it that you know, technology that can move the needle for us on, on sort of taking advantage of our size so that we can start building things even before there's a demand. And, and that goes in how we build platforms. I think we have a fairly specific approach at platforms. Two or three years ago, or two years ago, when the IoT platform was a thing and everybody wanted an IoT platform, etc. You had many companies that, you know, tried to to build their own flavor of the IoT platform. And then you have a lot of flavors of IoT platforms on the market. The way we've tried to approach that was to say, we don't think that anybody in a B2B, you know, fairly rational buyer B2B world, nobody wants to build a platform because they want a platform. People have a problem to solve. They want to solve that problem, you know. They might solve it through a platform, but it's kind of a means to an end. We try to look at technology through the lens of which problems are we trying to solve. So we form, actually, when we built our IoT platform, because we have one, but we, uh, in the context of, of uh, EcoStructure, which you know well, but we built it with a service team, with a kind of an internal professional service team. We built it as an internal product, and we set a few rules. A, we're never going to compete with our own businesses. So we might open it, but, but you know, two, we're never going to have technology-centric discussions. So we're going to create our own roadmapping capabilities, our own kind of, you know, lean startup methodology and sort of um, um, design thinking approach, if you will, where we work with our businesses, we define with them how the, the kind of customer problem we're trying to solve using an IoT platform. And then from that, we derive what capabilities we need. And the roadmap was a second order evolution from those design thinking process. And we've tried to do that so that we sort of abstract, to some extent, technology conversations from the business conversation. And, 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 and we try really to have business conversation first, you know, bringing customers around the table and so forth. And, and, and in a second step saying, okay, and then if you do that, you realize you rarely need some of the shiniest technology because many use cases, you can actually get there, you know, with good proven technologies and some super complex. Then you say, okay, now we might have an edge if we invest there, but you understand why you're doing, you understand what you're after and so forth. So we've been very considered in the use of technology, how we approach a platform, and we try to never sort of put technology first, but always technology as a, at a service of uh, uh, business conversations, right? And that has been a very, very key feature in how we've built. So we ended up actually, you know, we've never really marketed, if you will, ourselves as a platform. We say, no, it's on on the weather platform, but we rather say, no, we have a portfolio of solutions. 
on those portfolios for solutions, of course, because scale matter, because, you know, security matter, because you want to do things in a way that are extensible and so forth. They rely on common technologies on an IoT platform in the backend, but the priority was not selling a platform. The priority was solving actual customer problems. So, you know, kind of long answer, but that's, that's probably the freelance of people, resource allocation and sort of technology, you know, that I think are sort of heavily woven together. Interesting. That's a, a really great overview, Hervé. Thank you. I, I want to return to a few of those, those points, beginning with culture. So it sounds from the way you described it that the organization has a, uh, a willingness to change as a cultural attribute, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, which is mm-hmm. not, not common necessarily across organizations. In fact, to, to go through dramatic change is often you know, contrary to human nature and uncomfortable. But this willingness to, I mean, it is often the difference maker between the once great company that fades away and the one that remains great. And where, where do you suppose that comes from, that change is a, my word's not yours, but change is kind of a core competency and a cultural attribute? Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of, of course, leadership. I mean, we have a CEO that, you know, look at what cat. So he is a very unsatisfied person at the core. I mean, he's, he's a bar raiser, right? Which I think is a great leadership attribute and it kind of translates to the entire leadership team, right? So it's not the kind of company where you're going to hear, okay, we're all good now. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? If we do something, we're going to look at the next one and so forth. So, so there's, there's, there's um, you know, in the leadership value, how people are evaluated and how they are promoted, etc. There is this kind of discontent with a status quo, and that I think is something kind of unwritten, but I think that is fairly, fairly pervasive. I mean, it is hard to be promoted in the executive committee of Schneider if you're not fundamentally <laughs> unhappy with the status quo, if you don't want to change it. So there's something very much into the fabric of you know our leadership structure. And the other thing that I would add is that we're a company that grew up through a lot of acquisitions. I mean, our size increased tremendously over the years. So we always had to bring on new culture. I mean, integrate new companies. And, and that has always questioned us. I mean, when you make a very significant, you know, a significant acquisition, you realize, oh, they're doing things different than us. We might do that better than us. So then, you know, you want to pick that up. And when we integrate company, we don't come with that sort of massive approach where suddenly we paint everything and the next day, you know, they've lost their identity. We try to be a little more gentle in the way we acquire a company. We try to understand, to benchmark, see what's good on, on, on get inspiration also on sort of import not just export, but import what makes sense to us. So I think the fact that we grew uh, significantly via acquisition helped us question ourselves at various levels, not just the leadership. And and I think created that idea that, wow, you're never finished because, you know, you may work on that fancy IT system, but you know what, next year we're going to acquire that company and then you're you're back to square one. So I think those are two of, you know, maybe explanations, right, behind that 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 approach. That's very interesting. I also wanted to you you alluded to this product uh, versus a project mm-hmm. approach, and I know this is a rising trend across a yeah. lot of great 
organizations of rethinking, not necessarily always, you know, completely doing away with project orientation mm-hmm. or project management, but incorporating in the whole notion of product as a way of of framing different sorts of activities, bringing different kinds of teams together, uh, the continuity of work uh, in certain areas that are going to have this longer uh, a time horizon within the organization and so forth. Talk a bit about that evolution as well, if you would, Eric. So it's probably the latest big transformation with Embark, the technology teams on, right? Was to say, okay, I mean, agile is nice, but you need to put agile in context. Um, I think, in a, especially actually in large companies like ours, you can look at a lot of IT capabilities, really like a product, and stop thinking about a project with a beginning and the end, because you'll never get the end, especially in our context. You know, we are, we'll have acquired one more company, one more thing, one more change, etc. So stop thinking in in a with a finite mindset. You need to to sort of change the mindset and take on board some of all the good concepts that came with with Chrome and Agile, like if you build it, we run it, and you know, if you build it, you run it, and all those things, and say, okay, we're going to rethink the, the way we deliver internal capabilities by saying there might be 15 to 20 sort of macro capabilities we deliver, and they're going to have all their roadmap, and there's somebody who's going to be a, a mini-CIO sort that you know, we'll have that capability, we'll have to look at their roadmap, look at their interdependencies, look at the features that they develop, uh, how they simplify the architecture on how they deliver that capabilities on, you know, and end the sort of end result, right, from a business standpoint. So how you have success metrics that sort of proves that you are successful in the end. So, so this has been a lot of a thinking. And we've, like many large companies, you know, we suffered of the mega projects that, you know, are super difficult to manage, are full of interdependencies. And, and quite frankly, you never manage to finish because there's always something more. And we felt that the product mindset made, made a lot of sense, making people accountable. In particular, if you have sort of your internal professional service approach where you say the same way you do, you know, in every technology company, you don't have your product people absorbing every single customer request. You also have a professional service teams that's going to interface with, you know, this time your internal stakeholders, take it on board, translate, and then provide uh, relevant information to the you know, product team that will work on their roadmap and, and so forth. So so I think you really need to go uh, uh, all the way. And we started through that approach through the common bricks, right? So for instance, we said a few years ago, we should have one single sign-on. If you're a customer, it doesn't matter. You know, you have one ID and then, you know, personal, how we can personalize what you see. So, so this was one of our first product bricks, right? Where we really thought about it as a product on so agile uh, sprint, six week sprints, et cetera. And now, so we've developed more and more of those products. Now, you know, HR systems, we think about them like that and so forth. So there's this, this progressive evolution where we started by what was more transversal because it had more interdependency and the product mindset gave us probably a better framework to deal with those interdependencies. And now we're trying progressively to deploy that mindset towards more capability inside our uh, enterprise systems. 
And and how do you, you mentioned, you know, project product, you also talked about agile and giving agile better context. So does this change the way in which agile is implemented or, or leveraged across the organization? I think so. I, yeah. I think so because I, I, agile is, a, I mean, it's a great methodology, but the thing is that, you know, you can paint almost anything as agile. I mean, I've seen more than one person, yeah, we run Agile, and the first thing they show you is a waterfall chart, <laughs> a Gantt chart. I say, oh, you know, I'm not too sure. So I think it's important to say, you know, if you're really Agile, it's not just, you know, you just don't declare yourself Agile. You have to rethink how you manage your portfolio. You have to rethink how you spend and how you control your spending. You have to rethink how you make recruitment decisions. You have to rethink how you prioritize, like, you know, roadmap versus project approach and so forth. So I think it makes sure that we just don't paint a layer of agile, you know, like (laughs) it's not just a brush, (laughs) brushing some agile color on top of something that we have not changed at the core but that we really change the way we operate at the very core. And, and I think it's a way to make sure that agile transformation is not superficial, but becomes a real evolution of our operating model. You also talked about the sanctity of APIs as an organizing technology methodology is the wrong way of putting it, but t- talk a bit about how and where you have leveraged those. How do you determine you know, when to build technology with APIs potentially, you know, exposable or leveraged by others and so forth. So we've been developing a a reference architecture internally where, you know, we try, and of course, that's something that, you know, takes a lot of time to to, to progress. You don't just, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but but we've, we've managed to progressively implement a reference architecture inside Schneider where we say, okay, you know, this is going to be you know, the data layer, the logic layer, and then the exposure layer, and then the the user interface layer. And we try to do a huge mindset shift, which is whenever you are coming with a new feature, you don't try to create a UI that goes with that feature. (laughs) You try to deliver logic through an API that then can be picked up by a UI team that will, you know, do whatever has to be done with that particular logic. So we've tried really, there's a very good actually uh, Twitter thread, you may have seen it recently about, you know, the narrow waste internet on, 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 the, on the internet protocol, which I think is really spot on about how interface are very critical in every complex architecture. And I think for long, we've underestimated how important it is. So we're really trying to sort of say, at the end of the day, you have UI, you have logic, you have data layer, and then you have your interface. And if you sort of manage to articulate those four building blocks in a smart way, we're good. And, and, and we can, because we have uncoupled a lot of dependencies, and, 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 and uncoupling is the only way to go, to go fast. So, so I think it's, and, and of course, you know, AWS, has, the guys at AWS have really been forward-looking with their approach, right? I mean, an API-first approach on, on not trying how they've sort of built a system that doesn't rely on, on uh, or very, very little 
on, interdep on interdependency management, right? You just go build it, etc. So we've tried in our own, you know, in our own way to get some inspiration out of that and say, have a team that's really in our CTO team that's fully dedicated to API. It's a product by itself. API marketplace, we look at internal exposure, external exposure, documentation, and we try really to bring up the level of professionalism, but do that in a context of that reference architecture where you disconnect features from UI and, and, and you try to develop headless features that then can be integrated in the relevant UI, whether it's a mobile UI, voice UI, web UI, whatever that is, right? So it's uh, we're at the very beginning of, of that, but we see it as a pretty exciting change. And, and everything that can break down interdependencies, everything that allows us to remove a system change from the critical path is welcome because it means we can we can go faster. So we always have that logic, you know, what's your bottleneck? What's your critical path? And can we unbundle things so that, you know, you don't have to... On, on a lot of the work we did on very, at the very beginning on actually resource allocation was all thinking about that, right? How do we develop new things that don't depend on our bottlenecks to really be deployed, which means that at some point you're going to duplicate stuff. It might be not the most optimal, but you have to trade speed with uh, efficiency at some point. You've mentioned resource allocation as a as an area of importance and um, a something that's been a strategic weapon for you as well. Yeah. Talk a bit about, in light of the changes you've just described, especially the, the project to product uh, the difference in orientation, as to how prioritization and budgeting happens, perhaps differently than it, it would have under a more traditional, you know, project portfolio management orientation. So it, a few years ago, it was really a project-based resource allocation where we say, okay, you know, uh, mobile is coming, voice is, you know, how do we make sure we mobilize enough resource on architecture, etc., to to develop something new? The way it's evolving through agile product mindset, etc., is not so much. We do it at a less granular level now. I mean, if you have very good people in charge of all your bricks and all your products, it's going to be much more which are the products that need more investment on. And then you start at a global level, be less granular in how you allocate resource because you're going to allocate resource down to technology bricks on, 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 on technology products. And then you let the product uh, uh, sort of run it the next level down because they know what's in their roadmap. Yeah, they know better than anybody else. So, so that's sort of how we approach that, right? As we, we try to have that dual approach where we started quite granular on resource allocation. And I think we're progressively moving as we implement new products to sort of devolve account resource allocation accountability to the global product, product leaders and leave them more decisions. Because also, you know, um, we've also the level of product of our product leaders now is much higher than level of people we had maybe five or six years ago. So of course, by definition, you know, if you hire great people, you have to give them the accountability, freedom, and, and the resources that 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 go with it. I think we still keep a very high level of visibility. We still keep that ability of saying yes, we really want to work on that, and that's going to be done through this product, etc. 
but we do it more at a slightly more higher level now that we are migrating to a product mindset and, and, and we try to yeah, leave more accountability to the to the product leaders understood and you you also mentioned that yours is a culture that is very willing to experiment and innovate but that you also said that it's important to have some guidance that to shepherd that experimentation in a certain direction and and i, I don't believe you use the word but as you were referring to road mapping you, you did use mm-hmm. i'm thinking of strategy like yeah. so you have to have kind of a, a signpost as to where we're going now let's all think about the various creative ways in which we can get there and hopefully get there faster Talk a bit about the strategic planning process and the extent to which it may have, it may not have, but the extent to which it's changed at all in light of some of the other changes described in the models um, for the organization. It's interesting because in a good Schneider way, I don't think we have a super formal, I mean, we have a strategic planning, you know, three-year plan, whatever, et cetera, that, that we do every year. And that's a pretty good exercise. When it comes to technology, I don't think it is that formalized. I, I, I think we are try to be super connected, of course, with what's happening, and, you know, super connected with VCs, with startups. We, we try to have a lot of antennas. We have a venture uh, uh, arm. We have uh, so we happen sometimes to invest in startup. We're gonna usually make a small bet, assess, repeat, and 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 then if we really see something emerging. We're going to keep an eye. I mean, as I mentioned, we want to be ahead of the game. So we try to either be late or early. So we try to be fairly, very explicit, but it's not in the context of, you know, a planning exercise that starts in March and then until May we screen and then, you know, you go again. It's kind of a permanent thing. And we're having with the innovation team, you know, quarterly meetings, go in the detail, thinking, so trying to to assess what are the what are the bets. If we are also things that are super technologies that are highly transversal, what we usually would do is ask one of our product leaders to experiment, right? So so we would try to experiment in one part of a company or or one one line of business and then you know learn, etc. So it's it's a kind of a continuous thing. And on the stuff also that we try to do which is always difficult is to make sure that everybody feels that, you know, this sense of innovation looking outside is part of their mandate. I mean, we want to avoid the situation where the um, technology organization is just around don't think, execute. And then you have a few dreamers on the side. Usually that doesn't work very well. So we try to push when we do reviews, we try also to put and again, not just innovation in vacuum, but say, okay, what new have you tested? <laughs> what have you tried to do differently? What are you know emerging technologies or companies you've been working with, etc.? It's not the most difficult aspect, I have to say, because we tend to have people that are ever hungry for external ideas. They love to experiment. So sometimes we even have to maybe calm down the enthusiasm and making sure that, you know, we still also do what's, uh, what's mainstream. But there is, yeah, that spirit of um, making sure that innovation doesn't stay at the edge, but you can infuse it in the core. And you have all those incubation processes, et cetera, to make sure that you really uh, pick it up on, 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 uh, pretty fast. 
You, you alluded to the ecosystem that you leverage. Um, you talked about customers earlier. Yep. You just just referenced venture capitalists, and, you know, other kind of external sources of insight. Talk a bit further, if you would, about that kind of uh, process of going outside of the organization uh, to validate approaches, no doubt, or hypotheses, but also to generate new insights that benefit the company and ultimately the customers. So there's probably three or four different aspects to that. I mean, of course, you know, we have a huge advantage of being in, in Boston, not too far from MIT. We do spend time with academic institutions in general, sponsoring some research, working in some consortium, working in some academic centers. So, you know, the Initiative for Digital Economy, for instance, at MIT or CESAR at MIT are areas that we, which are good ways of, you know, stepping back, thinking, etc. So we've really leveraged our relationship there. There's also in the Boston area, very interesting incubators. I don't know if you heard about Greentown Lab. It's a one of the, it's a clean tech incubator. That's pretty, it's a huge one, actually, there in Somerville. And, and, and again, we have pretty good uh, relationship there. So it helps us, you know, still getting this nervous system where you feel what's going on. So I mentioned VC. I mean, I try myself to keep a good relationship with VC, discuss with them, share notes, etc. But some of the large VCs, of course, are super forward looking in where in terms of what's going on. And I say the fourth big thing is our large partners. I mean, we value, you know, the relationship with AWS and with Microsoft is really impressive. Microsoft, I mean, the change in Microsoft are also uh, quite amazing. So I think we we also try to get inspiration, you know, for very large tech partners. You've talked about a couple of different cloud partners, AWS, Microsoft, yep. among others, I'm sure perhaps. Talk a bit about the, the cloud generally as a source of nimbleness, as a means of changing the way in which technology can be ramped up, ramped back, you know, the variabilization of costs, the some of the other advantages that you've seen, uh, as well as I, I, if you wouldn't mind sharing, Hervé, your vision for, you know, the degree of cloud penetration across the technology stack that you think is appropriate. Yeah. Oh, for us, you know, if there's one good bet that we did was to be early on the cloud because, you know, it allowed us to free a lot of resource. I mean, leadership resource, technology resource, financial resource in doing other things that were more core to the mission. So we've, we've tried to be very at the forefront of a cloud transformation. We feel it's a huge game changer in terms of, scale. of course, all the, all the good thing that we all know, right? Scalability and how, how quickly you can uh, uh, ramp up resource. And I think there's something that is kind of, you know, when you take cloud API, there are something that is kind of understated sometimes when we speak about how it helps us to connect across different organizations. I mean, if you you know, cloud helps you to uh, connect with your ecosystem in a way that much more nimble than what it used to be only a few years ago when you had to drill a hole through your firewalls and so forth, right? So there's a whole evolution of cloud networking technology that allows us not to have a trade-off between cloud and security, but have both, as it should be, and, and therefore being able to expand to your ecosystem much more quickly. And I think that's absolutely, you know, one of the core value for us. I mean, you know, if you're going through m and I mean, if you have a heavily cloudified environment, it is much easier <laughs> 
<laughs> to connect a new entity that has you know that has been acquired recently. So so I think this connectivity value, which gives at the juncture of cloud and, and network tech, is 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 a huge uh, driver for us. We really believe. In, in cloud technology, we believe at cloud on edge. We think that, especially in the industrial world, I think there's a place for both. I mean, if you look at, you know, industrial environment, you still need deterministic real time. You know, you can't have any latency. You can't have any network dependencies. So I think that we, we see a very interesting evolution of the entire stack, actually, of cloud and edge with very different functional points. Usually your control systems being at the edge and then more your analytics and benchmarking and performance layer being on the cloud and all those ideas also that have progressed tremendously on how you you train a machine learning model on the cloud and then you infer on the edge so that you know you do it right away and, and you create the right abilities so that you can train your model even faster with what has been inferred on the, on the, on the, on the edge so i think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting evolutions there around cloud and edge. And I think that's really the new, you know, sort of one of the new platform. And, and networking technologies have evolved a lot also to, they're kind of the unsung hero in my view, because they've, they've evolved a lot in helping us achieve that vision. Mm, that's interesting. You referenced security and obviously the sanctity of security for any organization, mm-hmm. and the increased complexity of doing so. Can you talk a bit about how how that's evolved? Again, as I say, as the landscape of technology changes, as there are, especially in an IoT environment where there's data collected from so many different resources now, you know, the, the security landscape becomes a bit more complex as well. Talk a bit about just sort of like your, your general thought process there. So it's, it, it's, it indeed has evolved quite a fair bit. I think the main thing is, you know, cloud was probably the first big move that kind of got us away from the traditional perimeter vision of security, right? Where you you have big walls and you retreat in your castle behind big walls, etc. I mean, it's not possible anymore. You know, of course, maybe in some super specialized, like, you know, this kind of activities, maybe you still do that. But in many of the other cases, right, you need to work with your ecosystems, whether they're partners, whether they're customers, and you can't just rely on a perimeter, on having thick walls. So I think in, from that perspective, the NIST framework, you know, uh, that has been uh, developed by the Department of Commerce is a huge way to thinking about it, to think about it in depth, where you look really through all the steps, right? Detect, protect, detect, and, and, and uh, up to recover. And I think that's really the mindset we've tried to take. It's to try to have a, an in-depth approach to security as opposed to a perimetric approach. We try really to say, Hey, sometimes we kind of oppose things that should not be opposed. We feel that IoT, we feel that the cloud are a way to absorb much more information. So you're able to understand what's going on much better than before. So actually, it should not go against your security position. It should improve it because you are able to see much more and to analyze much more and to react much more quickly. So if you're in an approach where, you know, you believe uh, you don't just rely on walls, but you have radars and you look at what's going on and you, collab- you correlate, if you create that capability of reacting super quickly. We don't oppose technology and cloud, etc. I mean, even, you know, COVID-19 meant that so many people are working from home. So goodbye perimeter on for a while. 
<laughs> so I think all those zero trust concept, all new network security concepts, are, I, I think are going to get a lot of traction very, very quickly because they just enable the way we do business now. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. One of the areas that, that has in the past at least been highlighted among actually several you've already covered that, that aid, for instance, security because of its uh, ability to reduce complexity is enterprise architecture. And you know, having kind of a mm-hmm. better tabulation of your, your real estate, so to say, from a technology perspective and how that's changing, how the new should at least yield uh, the retirement of the old, and then just sort of understanding the interconnections of all that you have built. Talk a bit about your your own use of enterprise architecture and, and whether or not you you uh, agree with that uh, hypothesis I just put out. No, absolutely. We think it's 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 actually you know enterprise architecture is even more important than than ever because actually you know the, the data virtualization API containers all the new ways you think about logic right all all the way you think that UI now means that you need to think more and more as at a component level so it's like not architecture inside the building but you're looking at the architecture of the entire city and and that's where enterprise architecture is even more important and that think that component level thinking, right? I mean, in real world, of course, you need to think inside the component and outside the component. But I mean, if I had to prioritize something, looking at your architecture at at a component level, at the enterprise level, it's a good way to ensure that you don't create bottlenecks, that you don't create critical paths, that you're not going to be, that you're going to be dependent upon in the future. So you have the good thing with enterprise architecture is you realize that you have different functions of scale, right? I mean, in a traditional way, scale means size, which of course, in a way, scales mean size. But I think if you think about it from an enterprise architecture standpoint, scales means re- often replicability. And scale means your ability to efficiently replicate something that works well somewhere. And I'm always pushing the enterprise architect to think about those two di- dimensions, of, of scale. And I think there's a traditional model of centralized scales, build something unique and, and super efficient, et cetera. But you have a more distributed version of scale that goes with high replicability, which I think a good thinking of enterprise architecture allows you to, to at least conceptualize on, on, on aim at. That's a great overview. Um, I also want just a very brief related topic of, of the retirement of old systems, the retirement of old technology. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies are great at divining the new, but aren't necessarily as good at, okay, so now that we've introduced this new technology, what's the thing or things that are redundant as a result of this that we can you know, retire or sunset? Talk about your, your process there to make sure that you're not just developing sort of a, you know, 100 flavors of the same technology. Yeah, so it goes now. It's one of the things that we used to do more centralized that the product approach that we are discussing before allows you to do more at a decentralized level at the level of each product. So progressively now, each product are in charge their own landscape, right? So we have a, a pretty traditional four-tier, right? Look at application from the, the latest and to the obsolescent. And, and, and then it's the role of each. It becomes one of the accountability of the product owners actually to look at the estate to look at the landscape and create the the obsolescence management approach that works for them and we've learned that 
it's actually fairly different from an area to another. So it does make sense to let your product owners have a say in that and define what's the best way to, to approach. The thing that we care about at a global level is visibility. So we have a super clear now vision of all of our application. We know the age. We have a, a sort of a computer kind of coefficient of obsolescence. So, so we have some rules as to, okay, you know, if, if it's obsolescence after two years, it needs to go. So, so we've kind of defined some rule-based high-level principle, but really progressively our idea is rather to let the product owner go with it and, and, and implement and, and work on the tactic, right? And, and, and then the role of the central is much more giving the framework on, on, on the set of the principle set. That's great. Thank you so much for taking time with me. It's been a really great conversation uh, covering a lot of different aspects of what you and the team have done to, to, in fact, make sure that Schneider Electric remains a nimble player. So thank you for sharing the anecdotes. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In an era of unprecedented technology progress and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others, have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same. To learn more, visit gettingtonimble.com.